Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, is everybody's head spinning yet? Because developments are coming fast and furious on the tax front. So let's see. Last week, we got the first real look at the Biden corporate tax plan. We discussed that on the last episode. But remember, we only covered the tax increase side of the plan. I promised you that we'd get to the tax benefits side of the plan, and we will someday. But then on Monday, we got Senate Finance Chair Ron Wyden's long-awaited white paper on international taxes, a document outlining his vision for the future of the international tax system. And then we had a momentous ruling from the Senate parliamentarian, a ruling that could upend the timing and the substance in how Democrats could move a tax bill later this year. And now, just a few hours ago, the Treasury Department released a 19-page summary of Biden's Made in America tax plan, giving us more details than we've had before on how that plan would work. All of these items are worthy of a separate episode in and of themselves. But hey, we can barely scramble to pull together one episode a week, let alone one daily. So I promise you, we will get to all of this stuff as soon as we can. But for today, let's just tackle two items. Let's talk about the parliamentarian's ruling, and then let's talk about the widened white paper. And then more to come on the Biden plan in the coming weeks. With us to discuss these topics, we have catching up on Capitol Hill veterans with us, Jennifer Gray and Tom Stout. So Tom, let me start with you. I mentioned this thing, this ruling from the parliamentarian about the effects of budget reconciliation and the timing and the availability of budget reconciliation. Look, this is really inside the beltway kind of stuff, but it matters, doesn't it, in terms of how the process works. So can you just give us a few minutes, explain to us exactly what the parliamentarian said, and then we could talk about what that really means in terms of taxes. Of course, the assumption is that there aren't 60 votes for Biden's spending and tax plan in the Senate, and therefore it's going to require, again, resort to the budget reconciliation process in order to get this done, if it gets done. The traditional wisdom is that you're only entitled to one budget reconciliation bill per fiscal year. Currently, there's still one reconciliation bill available this year under that theory. It's there for use, whatever use the administration wants to put to it. But what the parliamentarian has ruled, this is what's new, it appears she's ruled that there can be more than one budget reconciliation bill in a fiscal year. And what that potentially does is gives the administration a little more flexibility if it wants to, to divide up its economic program the way it's dividing it up now pass two reconciliation bills instead of instead of combining them all in one. It's still not clear that you know that's going to be their ultimate tactic for doing it, but if it turns out to be advantageous for strategic political reasons, they may now have the flexibility to pass two bills instead of one bill. So Jennifer, let me ask you a question then as a Senate person. What argument is it that Democrats made to the parliamentarian to completely reverse broad understanding that you would generally get one per year? Was it something obvious or did they come up with a really new concept of the way reconciliation works? It's actually pretty obvious to geek out a bit. If you look at Section 304 of the Budget Act, basically it says that you can revise a budget resolution So everyone always knew that you could revise a budget resolution, and that's been done, although not for several years, but it has been done back in the 80s, I know, a few times. What is new here is it was unclear that if you revise that budget resolution, 
does that revision also get a new reconciliation opportunity again? So that's what's new here. So it appears that that's the case that if you revise a fiscal year budget, gives you another opportunity to do a reconciliation that's tied to that revision. What's unclear is whether the parameters are wide open and as flexible on that as they are with the original fiscal year resolution, or maybe there are some tighter parameters that would go with a reconciliation bill that comes from a revised resolution. So it's just unclear at this point. You know, parliamentarians don't make their rulings public. So, you know, really is an inside the hill type issue. So if I understand then, we're saying that we knew that we could amend or revise a budget prior to this, but we did not really fully comprehend that in so doing, you could unlock another budget reconciliation. So what this means is that Democrats, having already passed and used budget reconciliation in FY21, can now amend that or revise it and have a second reconciliation instruction for fiscal year 21, or maybe even more. And then they can turn to the fiscal year 2022 budget, pass that with reconciliation instructions, and then later revise that for yet another. So we've got potentially several more bites at the apple. But let me ask you a question then, Tom. Does it matter that much? They always had one, and they could always pass all the things they wanted to, right? Inside, you know, as it relates to the infrastructure bill or bills, they could always do that in the one reconciliation instruction that we knew that they had. Does having two or three or four really change that in any meaningful way? And if so, how? Well, that's a good question. It's possible it makes no difference at all that in the end, the administration is going to want to combine both of these bills in order to get everybody on the Democratic side on board so they can pass them, in which case, you know, there'll be one reconciliation bill and, and all this won't matter. If the tactics change, if, if for some reason politically they believe it's more advantageous to do two bills, they can do two bills. One thing we, it bears keeping in mind here is that there are other budget reconciliation problems with the administration's proposal, and that's mostly on the spending side. There are real serious questions uh, under budget reconciliation, whether they can do all the things they want to do there. In fact, a lot of them are highly questionable. So this is not the end of the budget reconciliation story. But the tactic potentially could change because of the new ruling. I think that's right. Just looking back on what this means, if you know, you're know, you trying to ask yourself, should I really care about a ruling from the Senate parliamentarian? As Tom said, maybe no. It might not really, in the end, mean much. But it does at least give Democrats greater flexibility in how to potentially divide and message these bills. It also possibly accelerates the timing, because if we're going to revise the fiscal year 21 budget resolution, that that's something that can happen relatively quickly versus writing an all new one for fiscal year 2022. And that could put some of the corporate tax increases that are in the Biden plan, could put them on the agenda this summer rather than much later in the fall, although I'm still a little skeptical on that, at least theoretically could. So that's why it could potentially matter and getting a lot of attention here in Washington. And John, I think just make two quick points. One, if you are talking about a reconciliation bill tied to a revised FY21 budget, the ability to do that expires at the end of the fiscal year. So in other words, if they went that route, they would have to pass that reconciliation bill by 9-30-21, which is the end of the fiscal year. And just a second point where we keep saying you can only do one reconciliation bill. You can actually do three on a distinct topic each, but you can only do one tax-related reconciliation bill. So that's what we've been referring to. Right. You got it. You got it. Okay. All right. Now let's go to the widen 
long-awaited <laughs> Wyden white paper on international taxes. And, you know, he's indicated that he's been working on this for some time. We knew it was coming. We thought it might come last week. It's possible that he delayed it by a week because he knew that Biden was coming out with his proposal. So now we got it on Monday. He calls it a framework. Call it a white paper, what you will. Let me start with you, Jennifer. What exactly is this thing? It's not a bill. It's a framework or a white paper. What is the point of putting it something in that format versus, hey, let's just draft a bill and release that? Why do you think he chose to put it out as he did? Well, first of all, it's easier, so it's certainly much quicker to put together something in prose form than it is to to write out legislative language, which, as you know, has a million cross-references and just too many technical things to even list. So I think that's the first item. The other issue is because you're not drafting, you don't have to necessarily address every little miggling detail, so it gives you a little bit more flexibility and also it really gives you an opportunity to discuss with your fellow legislatures and other stakeholders some of the concepts in the white paper. I think that's right. It gives us directional information for sure, so that you can't say, I'm shocked that this is Chairman Wyden did, because he would say, well, I told you the direction we're going to do. You have not every detail, but it's important directionally. But you are right. There are a lot of important details. And Tom, I bet you're about to tell me this. I'm going to ask you for some details on the framework, but there are a lot of important details missing here, like, you know, rates. (laughs) But it's important directionally. And you're right, Jennifer, it's much easier to put these out than trying to put out detailed legislation. So, Tom, tell us then, what did Chairman Wyden tell us? What are the highlights of his international framework? Yeah, well, you're right about the rate, John, which to change the guilty rate, which he's posited as being between 60 and 100% of the domestic U.S. rate. So leaves a lot to the imagination. And what he's doing here is basically keeping the framework of existing law, at least that's what he's proposing, by retaining guilty and just changing the rate, but making a, a lot of significant changes. He's talking about applying the guilty on a country by country basis. He's proposing to repeal qualified business asset investment deduction. He's talking about changing the beat in a pretty significant way, talking about restoring the value of business credits, which is something that he's very interested in. And again, they're also increasing the rate, all with the goals that he keeps repeating, which is to encourage investment in the U.S., to discourage investment offshore, and the general democratic label on all this, which is to require businesses to pay their fair share of tax. Yeah, so it's directionally similar to Biden. We can talk about this in more detail in a second, but I hear everything you're saying, and you might, if just listening to this, go, oh, it sounds somewhat like Biden, but there are differences. But it gives you an indication where he's going. I thought it was kind of interesting when he said that the guilty rate should be somewhere between 60 and 100% of the corporate rate. This is one of the big questions we've had all year, knowing that Wyden's longstanding tax reform proposal was to equalize the rate on foreign earnings and U.S. income. So he's left that door open. That's the 100% option. But he also hasn't slammed the door shut on the possibility of having a differential rate. So that'll be one of the things that no doubt taxpayers are very much going to be interested in seeing more details on when we get them. So to more details then, Jennifer, when might we get more detail? I guess the ultimate would be actual legislative text. Do you think this is going to be converted to legislative text? And when might that be? It's possible. My guess is we probably will not see a standalone bill based upon this white paper that was just released. I think what we'll probably end up seeing is some of the concepts in here potentially being combined, I suspect, with some of the Biden ideas and perhaps some other ideas, and that eventually coming out as part of the infrastructure bill once they start to move that is my best guess. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people say, oh, we can't wait to see the legislation because then we can really understand. And my guess is when we see the legislative text, it's going to be relatively late in the process. I just think back to that if we're drawing any analogies between what's happening this year and what happened in 2017, if you recall, the Republicans released this white paper framework thing late September, which gave us the first real idea of what they were going to do. We got an idea that something like beat might be there, that there was going to be some tax on foreign earnings. And that was the first shot, but we didn't really get much more until we saw legislative text. And then we saw legislative text and it moved quickly from the time that the first bills were introduced till they were marked up in committee and moved through the House or the Senate. So it's not impossible that we won't see more from Wyden until we see legislative text. And when we see that legislative text, we'll be off to the races from a legislative point of view. Does anybody think that's a possibility? Yeah, that's what I think was more likely to happen. So if that's true, if anybody said, well, I would like to let Chairman Wyden have my point of view known about his framework, now would be the time, not when you wait to see legislative text, because when that comes, it's probably too late. All right, Tom, we've got directional information from Wyden, but it's not identical. It's in some ways similar to what Biden told us last week. Just talk to us about what are the similarities and where are the big differences between Biden and Wyden? Well, there doesn't appear to have been much cooperation, if any, with the administration putting those together. In fact, the fact that it came out so quickly after the administration's proposal indicates there may have been no coordination at all. That said, both Wyden and his staff have been at pains to say that they're, as they put it, rowing in the same direction as the administration and have the same goals, which were those three that I mentioned earlier, creating jobs in the U.S., discouraging offshoring and, and making businesses pay their fair share, as they call it. The basics of Wyden are, are not terribly different from what Biden is proposing. He's talking about increasing the guilty rate, although he doesn't say what it is, applying guilty on a country-by-country -country basis, repealing Cuba, and increasing the beat minimum tax, although that's where the main difference comes in. What he's proposing to do with beat is First of all, making some adjustments to restore the value of domestic business credits, but then increasing the rate uh, somewhat, but keeping the structure of BEAT in place instead of what the administration is proposing, which is to replace the BEAT with something quite different based on you know, the concept of a global minimum tax, which is, in fairness, to widen something that's you know, not really within his control. That's something that the administration's negotiating or will negotiate with the OECD. And what all this means, I think, at the end of the day is this works its way through Congress. Congress will have its say in what goes into the final product. And what's going on at the OECD may affect what the ultimate direction of all this is. Yeah, just thinking about these differences, you know, you're right. The beat is a difference. Biden's got the repeal and replace strategy. And part of his replace strategy is clearly going to be used as leverage in the pillar two or broader OECD negotiations. Whereas Wyden, you're right, it'd be a little odd for Wyden to insert himself in that process through his, at least his white paper. Although he has strongly held views as he has made known on that topic. He's made that known over the years. One other important difference is Fiddy. Biden would repeal Fiddy, whereas Wyden wants to retain it, although fix it, I guess is the way he would describe it uh, as well, or modify it in ways that would drive more specific activity, good activity, whereas I think he's sort of critical of the FIDI as it currently is, that it didn't necessarily drive the activity, the R&D and the innovation kind of activity that I think that he was hoping to get. So would you put that down as an important distinction between the two as well, Tom? He's definitely proposing doing something different. He just doesn't say much about what it is he's 
proposing right. to do. He, he's saying that FIDI has not served its function and encouraging investment in the U.S. has actually had the opposite effect, which is a criticism we've heard elsewhere. But how exactly he plans on fixing it, he doesn't say. Yep. So more on FIDI. But it seems pretty clear, you know, a month or so ago, we hadn't heard anything about FIDI or BEAT. And now we've got both of them, Fiddy and Beat, in the Biden and the Wyden plan. So it seems like they are going to both be in the mix at some point when this all goes live at some point later this year. Clearly so, yeah. Yep. All right, for both of you, do we think that this proposal or white paper from Wyden, does that represent all the Senate Finance Committee Democrats? Is this Wyden himself? Talk about how broadly should we read this thing in terms of Democratic support? Well, he did have two other members of the committee sign on to the bill, Senators Brown from Ohio and Senator Warner. My guess is those are the members that signed on that wanted to sign on. I suspect that a number of the other members of both the committee and the caucus will be looking to see what the president has proposed and some other ideas as well before they really form a complete opinion of where they think the international system needs to go. So it's not per se a committee document, although we do have committee members on it. But let me ask you, Tom. If you were to look at Senator Warner and Brown, I mean, that's a pretty broad diversity in political points of view. Do you think that suggests that there is broader political support for this or am I reading too much into this? Well, it's not clear what their support for. I mean, it's a wide spectrum uh, and getting back to that 60 to 100 percent guilty rate. I could see Senator Warner at the 60 percent level and Senator Brown at the 100 percent level. And that may be why it's 60 to 100 percent. So how much consensus is there on that? And there's no one else on it. So at this point, this is, I think, mostly a, a widened product. And it's important that they do not opine on the corporate rate either, knowing that that's going to almost certainly be one of the more challenging issues to get consensus on. So maybe we shouldn't read too much in it other than that Democrats are clearly supportive of doing something here. Exactly what the approach is going to be, we are going to have to see. Well, I guess I can leave it there for the white and white paper for now. We may get more from the chairman and we can come back to it then. And of course, as I said, we've got so much else happening, especially as it relates to Biden. We'll come back to that as well. Just one last thing before we leave today. You may have noticed that we have shuffled up our normal teams in recording today. Well, there is a reason for that, a good reason. Our good friend and colleague Jenna Cunha is now out on maternity leave for the next few months. We're happy for her. So, Jen, congratulations to you and Drew. Welcome to your happy and healthy baby boy, who I'm sure will become a tax lawyer like both of his parents. Jen, I'm sorry that you're going to miss all the legislative fun in the coming months, but we're looking forward to having you back on the show whenever you're ready. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.